The Constellation, Episode 15, Ecotopia. The debriefing after the ICA performance was traumatic. The group all felt like they had a massive hangover. Carl and Mary had ended up in bed and regretted it already. Dave didn't come to the debrief, saying he had some business to take care of but he'd confessed to Gus on the phone that he'd been tripping and didn't really remember much of what happened. You'd only got to the slideshow and I'd already used up most of my smells, he said, as if everyone else had been operating on some glacial timescale. Gus felt strange, empty, as if he didn't really have anything to say to anyone. Carol and Mary were angry. They felt that their engagement had been misused. Their reportage on women's strength had just been used as pretty pictures, decoration. Toby tried to persuade them that their contribution had been essential. Carl rolled a joint and everyone calmed down a bit. But they all agreed that while everything had gone almost completely to plan and that they'd improvised a great ending, the whole thing was a total failure. It was supposed to be a gift, a potlatch, said Carl, and all those bloody posers just laughed at us. They didn't even do that, really, just clapped politely, said Mary. They debated what should have happened then. Could they have really expected the audience to join in? to go on the rampage and destroy the institution, to run down the mull and set the palace on fire? What could art do in the end? It was immersive, said Mary, but it was like a straitjacket. We weren't exactly inviting people to join in. It was more confrontational. You guys were posing downstairs with your noise while we were stuck up in the grid. There was so much distance. There'll always be a distance, said Carol. That's why I'm not an artist, why I want to be a journalist. But, said Mary, doesn't journalism imply distance too? Yes, of course, and we use it. But in art, you pretend it's not there. 
that you can create some kind of authentic experience directly. But it is possible, said Toby. And that's what I thought we were trying to do. We were almost there. If we failed, we should just try again. Fail better, said Gus. But no one talked about a new project. Not then, nor in the weeks to come. It was as if they'd all realised that the group was history. starting our descent to LAIA. Please put away your tray tables, turn off any electronic devices, and fasten your seat belts. Carl doesn't wake up until the steward shakes his shoulder. It's been a bloody long trip. Brussels to London, Heathrow to Montreal, Montreal, Vancouver, and now this, the last leg. There are three lines at customs, international, chip, and ecotopian. Carl joins the international line, the longest. He opens his leather satchel and digs out his passport, invitation letter, visa, and vaccination papers. He could have had a chip implanted, of course, But no way was he going to let them do that. He remembers the early Covid conspiracy theory about Bill Gates wanting to inject a chip along with the vaccine. Not far off, he thinks. The Ecotopians are just waved through. He can't see if they're being scanned or something. Maybe it's just face recognition. When, at last, he reaches the front of the queue, there's some confusion. His Belgian vaccine booster certificate doesn't state that it covers the most recent strains. But Carl manages to find an email in his phone that persuades the quarantine official to stamp his passport. Then he's shown to an electronic kiosk where he has to pay his carbon tax. It's like collecting negative air miles, thinks Carl. The machine spits out a ticket which will let him exit the terminal.
The border had been shut for a long time during the pandemic. And then, of course, it had been shut during the Troubles. Californians voted in a referendum to keep the borders closed. And soon afterwards, Oregon and Washington State joined the de facto secession. The campaign was driven by social media and especially by the viral distribution of a Netflix series. One episode had been shown before the US administration had shut it down, but the rest of the episodes appeared on the net. The series, Ecotopia, was based on a book from the 1970s by a writer called Ernest Kallenbach. It seemed to prophetically offer answers to contemporary problems. Extreme income disparity, failing health services, rampant extractive capitalism, ecological disaster, and American exceptionalism. Only the chapter on race had been slightly rewritten for contemporary tastes. After the secession, it was decided by popular vote to name the new superstate after Kallenbach's book. After all, he'd even foreseen the unification of Oregon and Washington State with California. Unfortunately, he hadn't reckoned with the big tech companies. So, asks Carl a couple of hours later, yawning, how is it to run an ecotopian gallery, Kim? Oh, it's bloody difficult, you know. This hippie vibe is nice, green, peaceful. Sure, LA is a better place to live these days. But for the gallery, it's a fucking disaster, my dear. Carl takes it with a pinch of salt. She's always complaining about money. So, continues Kim, that's what Gail is doing in San Francisco. She's setting up our silicon operation. The secession states had naively assumed that the tech companies in Silicon Valley would rejoice at being part of the new, progressive, utopian society. As soon as the illegal referendum took place, though, Amazon, Alphabet, Apple, Facebook and the others acted swiftly. They basically had enough cash to fund a private army and enough drones to stand in for an air force. They were damned if they were going to go green with all the tax and moral problems that it would entail. And so another split happened. Following the example of New York City, they founded Silica, encompassing San Francisco, the Bay Area, and extending south to Monterey Bay. Silica consolidated the enormous global power of the tech companies into a mini-state, removing all obstacles to their economic world domination while depriving Ecotopia of two-thirds of its potential wealth. At least you've still got the vineyards, says Carl. Fuck the vineyards, it's the collectors. It makes sense to have a space there. The whole of Silica is a free port. It's a bit like a, an American Switzerland. Artworks kept there are not taxed. There's no property tax there at all. So it makes sense to have the storage there. 
but I still love my gallery space, so I'm not moving. Gail, Kim's now more or less equal partner in the gallery, had once told Carl that Kim projected CCTV streams from the gallery onto the walls of her bedroom at night, both to keep tabs on what was going on and to have an ever-changing exhibition at home. Carl thought it was a bit fetishistic. It must be like sleeping in a Bruce Nauman installation. Right now, they're hanging the booth for Freeze Los Angeles. Two technicians are helping, but Carl misses Gale and her sharp eye. She won't be back before tomorrow. Carl has made some new prints, has had them printed in LA just to avoid the customs problems. The Ecotopians are paranoid about uncontrolled imports. Not just for quarantine reasons or carbon credits, but he'd also have to prove that all the materials and labour involved were ethically sourced. His new constellations use images from Black Lives Matter, from Trump rallies, Antifa and the secession riots. Screen printed in muted colours with strong graphic overlays in black and silver ink, it's a small addition to keep the prices high. They'd only sell in Ecotopia, but if Kim gets it together, perhaps in silica as well. Carl is nervous about seeing Gail. It's been a year since they last hooked up in Europe, and this on-off, long-distance, take-it-or-leave-it relationship is nice, but it's complicated too. But the next day, at the opening, it's great to see her. Going around a fair with Gail is always fun. They're just taking drinks from a roaming waiter when Gail shouts, Hey, Tony, hola, que tal? And she shimmies across to greet a Catalan gallerist. You know Carl, right? Hi, hi. So, let's see, what are you showing? Oh, says Gail, with just a slight hint of disappointment. Of course, Ignasi. Yes, says Tony enthusiastically. These pieces are so great. Carl looks, nodding, at a series of blank prints, all with slightly different versions of, well, nothing. After promises to catch up with Tony later, Carl says, That's the same um, Tapies, right? Yeah, that's Tony, the son of Anthony. They have so much money they can get away with showing zilch. Not many American galleries here, huh? asks Carl. No, says Gail. The customs and the uncertainty? Gail stops in front of Willem van Zoom's stand. Large, abstract paintings. Look! They're dumping Julian Anderson, says Gail. What do you mean, dumping? Never heard of him, says Carl. Bad boy artist. In Holland, he was jailed for rape. I know someone who only just managed to escape his clutches at the Rijksacademie. I guess they had loads of work still in stock, and they hope that no one here follows the news. Here, let's sit down a second. Gail pulls Carl into a coffee area, gets out her phone and fiddles with it. 
What are you up to? asked Carl. Just tweeting something. She turns the screen so that Carl can read. Villain Van Zome shows rapist Anderson at hashtag freeze Los Angeles, hashtag me too. Wow, says Carl. Do you really want to start off another tweet tsunami? It's just for fun, says Gail. Come on. You know abuse has been totally rife in the arts. The power trust thing, it's totally weird in this world. I mean, what about us? Star artist, Bed's gallery assistant, half his age? In your dreams you're half my age, says Carl. Anyway, it felt like you bedded me. Not to me it didn't, says Gail. And I'm sure you got up to all sorts in your career. And hang on, you went out with what's-her-name? Joe? Wasn't that an abuse of power by her? You were half her age and her assistant. Is there any, um, ecotopian art around, says Carl. Don't change the subject, you bastard, jokes Gail. I can show you something. Come on. She takes him around the corner. William Weston Gallery's booth is almost completely filled with the sprawling roots of a huge tree. Along each root, Carl sees a line of text, elegantly carved. He starts to read. Thou shalt love and honour the earth, for it blesses thy life and governs thy survival. Thou shalt not steal from future generations by impoverishing or poisoning the earth. Yeah, it's a bit biblical, says Karl. That's Kallenbach, of course, says Gail. The earth's ten commandments. He's really seen like a kind of prophet these days. People carry his books around with them like Mao's Little Red Book. It looks nice, but it's a bit boring, moralistic, says Carl. What I want to know is how the fuck did they get it in here? And what is that gallery anyway? There's a total backlash against the art world here now, both from the artists and the government. So for Freeze to have their fair here, they had to, like, give 10% of the floor space to non-profit art spaces and cover the cost of transport. Actually, that's pretty cool, says Carl. It's disastrous for Kim, though, says Gail. And you. And me. Carl is shocked that even in this green promised land, there's still so much ostentatious bling around. The after-party takes over a whole block of bars and clubs. Moving down the street, Carl notices Steve McQueen standing with a group of people. He knows him, but he doesn't want to say hi. Carl has a sneaky suspicion that McQueen hates his work. And he's jealous of that last TV series. It felt to Carl as if someone had stole his past and made a film about it that he should have made himself. He wouldn't know what to say to him, so he walks on by. A few metres further on, Kim, with Carl and Gail in tow, walks through an anonymous but golden door and out the back into a tropical garden with piped ambient music, scents and slowly changing coloured lighting. Here, she says, 
dragging them over to a loungy area under a palm tree. A waiter in black t-shirt and impressive tattoos appears out of nowhere. Hi, how are you guys? I'm so sorry, folks, but this is reserved for Balenciaga. Oh, says Kim, clapping her hands together. That's us. Bring champagne. The waiter looks a little bit suspicious, but he soon returns with a trolley. After a while, Carl goes to take a leak in the opulent bathroom. When he comes back, smelling of roses, he does a double take. There's a completely different crowd sitting under the tree around the empty bucket and glasses. He sees Gail waving in the distance and Kim making for the exit. When he catches up, Kim, with a half-empty champagne bottle in hand, is giggling like a teenager. Let's go eat sushi! Gail rolls her eyes at Carl. Kim only ever eats sushi, due to some allergy which takes half an hour to explain. Carl wonders how she survives on a diet of raw fish and rice. But then he remembers that Gail told him of secret patisserie deliveries and finding cardboard containers from burger joints in the gallery trash. Later, lying in bed at Gail's place, she talks about the search for a space in San Francisco. It's so fucking expensive, but Kim is gambling on an enormous income. Not just the tech boy collectors, but maybe eventually people from other states will end up using silica for tax reasons. So the idea is to have a small gallery that's really chic and a huge storage so that we can shuffle things back and forth depending on who's coming to look. Like a Freeport thing, says Carl. So it, it won't really be public? No. Kim thinks that public shows have had their day. Okay. I know Kim still makes me money, but you know, sometimes I wish I could get out of it all. Just concentrate on the museum shows and independent spaces. But Carl, there has to be a balance. What would you live off? Who would produce your work? I have some friends in Brussels who set up their own thing. A platform for production and research. It's a fight, but they manage to fund their own projects that way. Maybe you should start doing something like that. But no one would take me seriously. Coming from the commercial art world, says Gail. I don't know. Anyway, do you want to move to Silica or stay in Ecotopia for as long as it lasts? Yeah, there's always the possibility that the US will nuke us or something. But I'm not going to Silica. They're so convinced about their own righteousness because they're so rich. It's awful. When you think about it, Silica can only really exist because of slave labor in the camps in Jinyang and the mines in the Congo or wherever. It's like remote colonization or something. No, I'm starting to get into the vibe here in Ecotopia. I mean, it was always cool to live in California, but this is turning into something way cooler. The only thing is, and this might sound a bit weird, but I think that there's so much creativity around. It feels like professional art 
has no reason to exist here anymore, that the art world will just collapse. But that's what I mean. If you set up some kind of non-profit thing, community thing, you know so much about the art world here and internationally, it might be the thing. Hmm. Anyway, says Gail, you changed the subject back there. How about Joe, your older lover? Wasn't that a power thing too? I don't know. I don't think she was in love with me. I mean, it was definitely for sex. But then I wasn't in love either. I was more in awe. But that's what I mean. It's a power thing. But I imagine that, as a woman, she was more sensitive. I mean, her work has always been about power and sex and death, so I guess she knew what she was doing. I don't think I felt, you know, violated in any way, says Carl. It was more of an apprenticeship, in more ways than one. Yeah, I definitely got more than I bargained for. So, just imagine we turn it around. Joe is a famous older male artist, and you, let's call you, um, Caroline, are a young art student. He asks you to work as his assistant, and then he fucks you. That doesn't sound so kosher, does it? Nah, not when you put it that way, no. Don't you think, though, that it's all gone, you know, a bit over the top? This wokeness, identity politics. The kids these days, they expect so much from everyone. Everything has to be so squeaky clean. Carl, I never thought I'd hear you say that. Nah, but, you know, I feel like I went through all this in the 80s. Women's rights, gay rights, anti-apartheid. And we also took it to extremes. You know, some of my friends were incredibly dogmatic about it. But people got more relaxed again in the 90s. Yeah, that's because they were all on ecstasy. But if you look at the situation, maybe there's a bit more awareness now in terms of blatant sexism. There are things that guys just don't say out loud anymore. But the system itself... The system that hands more power to men to do what they like to do to women, that makes sure men always make more money, that they're taken more seriously, that loads the legal system against female victims of violence, that system is still in place. For all the song and dance, your generation didn't do anything about it. I think the young people today see that you, okay, we, we're all off our heads in the 90s and we just took our eye off the ball. You know, like Black Lives Matter, they're angry. And also, continues Gail, look at Ecotopia. It happened. Because the alternative would have been all-out civil war, that slow escalation that happened after the Trumpians stormed Congress, but also of what happened in 2020. All the BLM protests in Portland. And then later you had Antifa in NYC and so on. It was all young people behind it. You saw the country being divided along age lines, geographical lines, social lines, race lines. And in the end, the young people up here in the West, the Northwest, their struggle didn't get uh, recuperated. Your favorite situationist word. No, your activism in the 80s got recuperated. This hasn't. It's really contributed. 
to the founding of something new. It was a neoliberal thing back then too. You know, the collapse of the Iron Curtain, the end of history, all that stuff. It kind of depoliticized the world. People just danced and had a good time. And they didn't realize that everything was being taken away from them again. That reminds me, a couple of years ago, my friend Gus wrote a song about exactly that, but also connecting it with, you know, what the big tech companies were doing. The world is ours, it's called. But he told me the other day that since he's been reading eco-philosophy, new materialism, he thinks that he was wrong. He says, the world isn't ours after all. What? He reads that stuff? Like who? Donna Haraway? Timothy Morton? I thought he was like a bit crazy. Crazy? It's not really the word. Gus is, I don't know, he's definitely on the spectrum. Borderline. It's all to do with a bad trip back in the 80s, long story. But yeah, he reads that stuff and it does his head in. Thank you.